Hi, I'm Jillian Swinford. And I'm Haley Brolison. And this is Mother Nature Will Kill You. A podcast about the most horrific tragedies. And the most triumphant survival stories that the wilderness can provide. So grab your backpack. And maybe a bottle of wine. And let's go on a wild ride into the unknown. Walking down this road I go. But I am going alone. Running far, far from home. Till I am skin and bone. I don't want to die. But I'll have to try. I don't want to die. But I'm on my own. Good morning. Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon. Good night. Whatever. Whatever time of day it is. Yes. We're back. We are. Yeah, if it, we we to us just talked last week, but yeah, <laughs> but to the viewers, there's gonna be more time in between. Yeah, but you true. are so so busy. Yeah, but it's the last push, you know. Two more mm-hmm. weddings, and mm-hmm. then and then we're done. So for the rest yeah. of the year, so yeah, that'll be good. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, so. how did Ethan fare the storm? So he's alive. That's great um, news. <laughs> I just found out today, actually. This oh, morning. really? Because their cell service was all out? <laughs> yeah. And they put them in these, like, buildings that were not really watertight. So they had to go through the hurricane um, with with leaks. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, He said, it was lackluster, to be honest. I was hoping for more drama. Vehicles washing away and buildings floating. Unfortunately, we all remained safe. (laughs) Unfortunately. (laughs) So this whole, like, weirdo obsession about all... It's a a genetic thing. It's not just me. The other Swinfords are like this, too. (laughs) Yes. That's funny. It's like, I thought... It would have been more intense for him. And it's interesting that he said it was lackluster because my brother was being such a fucking smart ass about all of it. Mm. I should read you some of the messages that he sent me and my family. And I was like, I kept trying to be like, dude, you're lucky. It could be worse. Like, mm-hmm. it could be worse, you know? Well, like, oh, it was goodness. worse for a lot of people. There was a lot of flooding yeah. and people trapped in their trailers. And so it's just one of those, well, you're lucky you weren't in the direct path. Or Yeah. You know, oh, my gosh. I guess, I guess our family message isn't on my uh, Mac messages. But it was so I can't pull it up right now. But it was something like diary entry day one. Uh, like, it started to sprinkle. Where's the an- the ants are dying at a rapid rate like all this shit and he, i was like dude and he got, kept sending pictures like it's fine here and i was like well you're lucky like you're right outside of it like i don't know and i saw the news the next day and it was like there was like so much flooding mm-hmm. and then he sent us a picture of dodger stadium it was underwater mm-hmm. it, you know how like it's a stadium so it's like a bowl so like 
the stadium center was dry, but everywhere around it was like yes. feet of water. <laughs> like it wasn't like a fun time for everyone. It makes you almost wish that like the the lower floor floor of their house got just like flooded with like, yeah, an inch like of come water. on, just an inch, not yeah. like threatening, but enough to be <laughs> or like a tree fell down around them, so they yeah. could kind of like understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it it made me feel super like I don't know, like helicopter sister, I guess. Like because mm-hmm. I was monitoring and I was like, you guys gotta be careful, like. You know, it's a category four right now. It's going to hit and then like it'll decrease like by the time it gets to you guys. But like you never know, like it could ride the coast up a bit more like it could be fucked. Like just be prepared. And they were just like all willy nilly about it. And then like when the storm hit, so like, oh, yeah, we're fine. And I was like, OK, now I just feel like an asshole. But like, but, you know, when Virginia had that earthquake that was like a five. Yeah. A few years ago. Yeah, And, like, every Californian was making fun of, like, Virginians for how they reacted to mm-hmm. the earthquake. I feel like that would have been the same scenario if the hurricane actually truly hit as a hurricane in California. Mm-hmm. Like, Floridians would be making fun of Californians. Mm-hmm. Like, Well, yeah, they kind of were and are, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, y'all don't know. You don't know what it's really like. Like, I don't know. I just listened to an episode of My Favorite Murder. They did Katrina and they actually did that hospital that we talked about in much greater detail than we did. And I was like, holy shit, there's so much more to this story. But to be fair, we were doing like little stories of the hurricane, not just So what they say about it. It just reminded me of like how truly catastrophic that event was. Yeah. And the fact that people to this day still don't take hurricanes seriously bothers me because I'm like that happened and it's changed the way we react to hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And if you're not taking it seriously, that's going to be you. I know. And that's why I was getting frustrated because like he was making jokes about it. Like, Oh, like nonchalant, like, Oh, like it's just sprinkling. Like, yeah, you know, and they, they weren't, him and his wife like they weren't really responding to our text messages leading up to Mm -hmm. the storm which isn't very abnormal for them like they don't respond to us a lot of the time actually um but still it's one of those things like hey like we care about you you guys have newborn twins like i make sure you guys have everything you need because you have three children now like Mm -hmm. (laughs) if power goes out like how are you going to be making your food like apparently they have a gas range so i'm like okay like at least you have gas like that's nice but like us here like we have electric range Mm -hmm. so like we wouldn't be able to make food on the stove if that happened to us um but yeah so it was just one of those things where he yeah he wasn't taking it very seriously it didn't (laughs) seem like and yeah it bothered me because i was like i have heard the horror stories down here from Irma and yeah. like I don't want to experience that. I've heard the horror stories from Harvey. I mean Houston was underwater and Rockport which is the the city in which it actually made landfall is still you can still see the scars from the landfall. There's still boats like in mangroves yeah. from Irma. There's still trash everywhere from Irma. Like the buildings themselves like I think it was last year the county came out and said that, like, everything has kind of gotten back to normal since Irma. Mm-hmm. But that was 2022 that they said that, or 2021 maybe. And mm-hmm. Irma hit in 2017, I believe. 
So it took a couple of years to get back to normal. Yeah. Well, and, and I bet even, the, the people whose houses w- were underwater because of this hurricane don't feel that way. So. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. I mean, sorry. I'm looking at flood pictures now. There's a lot of flooding, like a lot of flooding. Yeah. Like, like Katrina level, like entire neighborhoods underwater kind of flooding. Like, yeah, no, it was bad. So I was, when we were, when we did those stories, I was watching some of the videos you sent about like the guy in his like John boat who was just like dry, like boating around his neighborhood because mm-hmm. it was all flooded and like rescuing people from the roofs. That's yeah. bad. <clears throat> yeah. Well, Hawaii's like- on fire. Hurricanes are hitting California. Like, and then I saw that there was wildfires in like the Northwest again. Like, mm-hmm. and yeah, the Atlantic is pretty active for us right now when it comes yeah. to storms. So I'm hoping that they all stay away by the time we're go- or I hope I'm hoping that they're staying away while we're gone. And I hope that they stay away even after we get back. So we have like time to prepare. Yeah. But um, I know. it is making me a little bit nervous because I leave on Monday mm-hmm. and then a week later Alex is Alex leaves for uh his family's wedding. Uh, and my dad's going to be down here and just chaos. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, do we have to prep dad of like what happens for like, if, if he, if we're gone and a hurricane (laughs) hurricane comes up, you know, like, cause my dad's old, he's not going to be able to put the hurricane shutters up on the windows by himself. Mm -hmm. Like we're going to have to figure out who to help him, like, you know, how to get them up there for him. And then like, if it's bad, it's like, then dad, you pack my car up and you take Waylon and you just go to the mainland like, yeah yeah you get I, out like get yeah a full tank of gas like it's everything's fine we'll figure think, it out I think that's the other reason like sometimes people don't take it seriously is like the more inland they live the less seriously they think about it and we live right on the water so it's like this is so we yes. know like for the most part how to gauge if it's going to be really bad or not and like whether to freak out or not because yeah. we lived through so many at this point but at the same time, it's like there have been areas inland that get major amounts of flooding. Yeah. Like for Harvey, for I know Houston's not a great example because it is about an hour from the coast. But like it didn't, Harvey didn't hit Houston. Yeah. But it dumped a fuck ton of rain on Houston. And you never know if you're going to be Houston or not. You know what I mean? Yeah. You and just like, don't know. You know, during Hurricane Camilla, I think that was in the 90s, like the Appalachian region Mm -hmm. got devastated with flooding. Yeah. Devastated with flooding. I know. That's near the ocean. That's what I was trying to explain to my brother. I was like, you guys, like, like the bands will hit you. And like the bands is where like the rain and everything comes. And then I was trying to explain to them, like, you know, they, they don't have the infrastructure to like support a hurricane like if they get that much rain like they're having mudslides and like they live kind of in a bowl like they're in this neighborhood where like they have a hill behind them and then it's like another house you know so it's like it's like that whole hillside could start (laughs) coming down right towards your back door like yes you don't know you're gonna wish you fucking prepared yeah but i'm glad our idiot brother survived me too Um, I think Ethan was not in the best situation. I think it was definitely not. Yeah. There was flooding. It just wasn't like torrential. And that co- that text was a very sarcastic, you know, 
like yeah. well, it's really actually pretty boring I wish <laughs> I wish it could have been better <laughs> yeah that's that's a very Ethan thing to say um yeah but I yeah they're he said they're uh the buildings that they were staying in were definitely not like waterproof oh so they were very wet and miserable yeah so it you know wasn't the funnest experience yeah (laughs) yeah it's not like you go get a couple cases and then just hunker down and play video games or something while you're waiting for it to pass no i mean they're out in the desert training they don't have any of their stuff they don't have cell service they can't text outside anyway like it's a whole thing you know and they're supposed to be out there like doing all these like training maneuvers and they have to sit and wait it out because you know they don't want anybody to get washed away in a flash flood which i'm glad that that happened because the old army would have been like they'll be fine Fine. (laughs) it'll build character so that's just I'm looking at Windfinder right now because I know that there is a storm that's a brewing and it looks like it's coming right for the panhandle. So that makes me a little nervous because like we are definitely in the band of that storm on Wednesday. Yeah, we might get rain from that. That'd be nice. We needed this. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, that travel storm that came through, it was so lovely, even though one of our AC units units went out at least it wasn't the main one because we have two in our house yeah but like I had myself like a little cozy like pretend fall work from home day with the rain yeah. and the wind and I was like yeah. sitting there Ooh, like got mm. pumpkin spice a yes. fall candle <laughs> watching little awesome. Halloween movies while I was working yeah <laughs> you know I think the reason I like Halloween so much is yes I'm a little I'm a little morbid. We all know this about uh-huh. me, but I think yeah. it's also like a nostalgia thing because I feel like in the 90s and like the early 2000s, Halloween was like so good. It was you know so good. I mean? Yeah. It's like you were you little, just brought your pillowcase out. <laughs> yeah. And like, like that's when I started coming out with like actual good Halloween costumes, not the weird ones from like the 70s and 80s with the yeah. creepy mask. Like, and you could be whatever character you wanted to be or like mm. my mom would always make my costumes and it was always like a fun crafting thing for us and yeah. we lived in like Kansas and like Colorado and places that actually had leaf change color and so like you'd have that magic as well and like it would be cold and crisp and like it so felt like me, Halloween it's, yes it's like a nostalgia thing yeah. too like That's very fair. much that so, so I have this like little golden memory of what Halloween is to me yeah. in my head and I hold on to that. And so that's, that's why I'm so obsessed with Halloween. Yeah. That beyond, makes so much sense. Yeah. Beyond the spooky and scary stuff. So. Yeah. So, it makes sense. Speaking of uh, Halloween memories and mm-hmm. uh, also hurricanes. Yes. Shall part we? Two. <laughs> yes. Part two. The perfect storm or the Halloween Gale, as the storm is known, because it took place over Halloween weekend. Which could you imagine being a kid in New England on that weekend and being like, "Fuck, my Halloween is ruined." Yeah, (laughs) so we cannot go out now. Yeah. So anyway, um, so in the last episode, we talked about the formation of the Halloween Gale and the disappearance of the Andrea Gale, which is a topic of the movie The Perfect Storm. Mm -hmm. So 
you don't know what's going on, listen to the last episode because I turned this into a two-parter. So, as a quick recap, this storm, which is dubbed the perfect storm by scientists, was a combination of a nor'easter and a hurricane that combined over the Grand Banks off the coast of Nova Scotia and impacted the fishing fleet, um, Mm -hmm. the sword fishing fleet. Our main story, though, today focuses on the air guard team who was sent out to rescue a man off of a sailboat and were forced to turn back due to the weather. And then they found themselves in their own trouble. Because they couldn't connect the hooky-uppy thing with the the fuel tank. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So the the big issue was this this helicopter that they were in refuels mid-flight from a tanker plane, a C-130. And they have to hit this uh, hose. And this thing on the end is called the drogue. And they have to hit that in order to connect and be able to fuel from the tanker. And they were not able to do that because the storm was so bad. Yeah. So not ideal for sure. Not ideal. Um, So if you want to know more about that, you can go listen to the first episode if you need a recap or if you don't know what the fuck we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, so, So the team of men included helicopter pilot major Dave Rivola co-pilot Captain Graham Busher, Flight Engineer Staff Sergeant Jim Mioli, and Rescue Swimmers Technical Sergeant John Spillane and Technical Sergeant Rich Smith. Last we left them, they had missed their last airborne refueling due to the impossible-to-see-in conditions of pounding rain and 75-mile-per-hour winds. So, like, Pretty much, I think that is hurricane force. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, so Ravola has made the decision to do a planned ditch, which is a euphemism for a controlled crash, mm-hmm. into the ocean due to the fact that they only have 20 minutes of fuel left and they're still like 200 miles off the coast of New York, specifically Long Island, where they're supposed to be going to. Oh, wow. So, this is the sitch. Yes. This is the the problem. They pretty much have to do a controlled crash because they're going to run out of fuel. Well, and so they could have tried to hit the drogue for the next 20 minutes, but then it's like if they ran out of f- fuel, the crash would no longer be controlled and they could all very well fucking die. Yeah. Especially if, if their helicopter's falling from a height where they would have to be refueling at. What a horrible, like, decision-making spot to be in, you know? Yeah, it's rough, to say the least. Talk Um, about a rock in a hard place. Yes, yes. So at 9.28 p.m., the H-60 helicopter breaks through the clouds 200 feet above the sea and then goes into a hover. Uh, Rivola begins going over the ditching checklist that... They've practiced this like dozens of times in training, but it's going so fast that some routines are falling apart. Mm. And when like the most trained people have issues keeping up with a checklist, that that's how you know that it's so important to do that so that yeah. you can have some semblance of like supplies mm-hmm. that you need because it's it's nuts. And, you know, if you're ever in that situation, like, you don't know how you're going to be. You don't know how you're going to react. 
Nope. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. So in the dim light, Mioli has a hard time locating the life raft. And by the time he finds it, he doesn't have time to put on the survival suit, which mm. we also know as a Gumby suit. And it's yes. basically like a wetsuit that goes over all your clothes. Not to be confused with the ghillie suit, no. which is what I thought that that was. <laughs> ghillie suit is the camouflage. Gumby suit is the water version. Not yeah. really water version of the cam- camouflage, but it's the water it's the water safety yes. uh, suit. Yeah. And it's like, if they were in Florida, maybe that would be fine. But they're in the North Atlantic in October. so <sighs> Freezing cold water. Yeah. Yeah. Not okay. So he doesn't have time to read the checklist to Revola. So Revola's having to do it by memory. Like, he's the pilot. So he's having to do all his stuff by memory. Oh, no. And he doesn't remember to eject his door. Oh, no. So, by the time they have it all together, Revola was focused on hovering over the roaring sea more than, like, trying to make sure that he has everything together. Oh, shit. That stinks. In training, they're supposed to jump out into the crest of a wave. So, the top of the wave. Because it will cause less damage to their body as there's less fall time between them and the water. That's what I was just thinking of. I was like, the wave height is a little bit taller to where they're jumping from. So, it's Mm -hmm. a little bit better. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's like a lot bit taller. because Well, yeah, because they're like like 20 feet, 80 feet, whatever they were. They were were big. They're bigger than the big wave surfers. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. They're 100 feet. Something like that. 40. 40 40 feet. feet. And then there were rogue waves that would go up to 100 feet okay gotcha yeah so not great um no so for those of you who don't know hitting the trough or the bottom of the wave in these conditions could break bones or kill ultimate a person death. yeah immediate yeah. death not ultimate death immediate yeah. death. <laughs> i would feel like you're like hitting concrete right yeah so when jumping the body accelerates 20 miles an hour every second it's in the air and the longer you're in the air the more dangerous it is Mm, i don't like that fact that whole like idea of like hitting like hitting water is like hitting concrete is because water is the only substance that gives more resistance the harder you hit it so that's why when you're jumping from a higher height you're gonna hit harder yeah that's why people die also if you find yourself in a situation where you have to jump into the water it is preferred that you point your feet down to like break the surface tension so like the rest of your body doesn't hit as hard and you it like limits the possibility of like breaking your legs as you hit too exactly and then you cross your arms over your chest pretty much like if you're going on like one of those luge water slides (laughs) you like you know point yourself (laughs) cross your arms over your chest and hope for the fucking best yeah Yeah, well, I've never had to jump from something that high into water, so I didn't, because I don't jump off of things. That is not what I do. It's not my life. (laughs) I used to do that. I don't do that anymore. It's uh, not, I hate, I'm fine with heights. Like, if I'm up, looking around, whatever, this is great, this is fine. If I have to jump off of something or climb up something, no, 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 no. That is when the fear kicks in, there's no longer yeah like so rock climbing is not for me it's not (laughs) fucking for me and like jumping off of tall rocks into water that's really not my thing 
Yeah. Like, the last time I jumped <laughs> off a rock into water was like, oh gosh, it must have been like 2015. I want to say because it was like right before I got Waylon. And uh, yeah, it was in Colorado. We were at, I think it's called Mary's Glacier or like St. Mary's Glacier or something like that. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I think the tallest cliff was like 40 feet maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I can't, I can't remember. It's been so long now. But I jumped off of that one and it's a glacier lake. So the water's fucking cold. <laughs> and I don't think I was prepared for how cold the water was because like my body went into immediate shock when I hit yes. the water. And then when I... When I resurfaced, I was like gasping for air because yes. it was so cold. <laughs> and that is the last time that I have jumped off something into the water. Back to the okay. story. Sorry. So yeah. So if you jump from a certain height and you hit water, it's gonna feel like concrete and you could break something or kill yourself. That's yeah. long story short. And so because the ocean is so ravaged by the wind, they really and it's dark. They really can't tell the difference between the peaks and the troughs. So it's going to be a crapshoot. You know, yeah. So Dave Revola was staying board because his job was to make sure the helicopter doesn't fall on the crew. Um, and his job is essentially a death sentence at this mm-hmm. point. Um, and that's something he's like fully going to take on, mm-hmm. you know. So at 9.30, he called for the crew to bail out as the first engine sputtered out. Uh, after dumping the raft and not seeing it hit the water, Mioli decided to stay in the helicopter as he thinks he may have a better chance of surviving in the helicopter than jumping out. Oh, my goodness. Which, honestly, like, once you learn what happens, you're like, well, yeah, it really was a crapshoot, you know, whether you're yeah. going to survive or not. Um so Busher, the co-pilot who was supposed to stay in the helicopter with Revola, was ordered out by Revola because he thinks his survival would be better outside the cockpit. So we have one person who's like, uh, I think I'm going to take my chances here. And the co-pilot is getting kicked out by the oh pilot because he's like, your chances are going to be better out there than inside. Oh my goodness. So, uh, but... Bushor has night vision goggles because he's the Mm -hmm. co-pilot. They've been using it to try to find the drogue to fuel up. Um, And so he uses his night vision goggles to time the waves and manages to hit a crest because he's actually able to see them. Oh. He jumps out, hits a crest. Nice. Okay, we're getting somewhere. Right. Spillane, who is one of the two rescue swimmers, they do not have night vision goggles and they cannot see the crest so no he stated of this moment i wasn't terrified i was scared 40 minutes before i'd been more scared thinking about the possibilities but in the end i was totally committed the pilot had made the decision to ditch and it was a great decision how many pilots have just used up that last 20 minutes of fuel trying to hit the drogue then you'd fall out of the sky and everyone would die so Mm -hmm. The first rescue swimmer, Smith, jumped with Spillane jumping pretty much immediately right after. Because they want to hit the crest. So he's like, that's that's where we're going. That's where we're yeah. going. Yeah. So he falls for maybe <clears throat> 60 feet at 50 miles per hour. And then everything goes blank. Oh, no. So we'll go back to the pilot, Revolta. Yeah. He now moves the helicopter away from the men, waits for the second engine to sputter out. 
and then lets the acceleration of the dead rotors as they're winding down slow the helicopter down before it hits the water. Okay. Um, so once it hits the water, the, the force of the water causes the rotors to stop, which is good because you don't want those to be still spinning as you're trying yeah. to get out of this helicopter. <laughs> but the helicopter was upside down and in complete darkness, like that drill if you remember from the last episode oh. that they did. So this is exactly the reason why they do that drill. Yeah. I forgot all about that. Right. So Ravola is like looking around. He grabbing for his Heads bottle, which is like a three minute air supply. It's got like a little respirator mask on it. And basically it's for this kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had been ripped off his leg during the crash. Oh, no. So he only has the air in his lungs at this point. Oh, no. Then he realized that he had never opened the exit door. (gasps) Right? He never ejected his door, but tried it anyway, and to his amazement, it opened. Oh, thank God. So he kicked his way out and activated the CO2 cartridge on his vest and shot to the surface. Wow. He started yelling for the other crewmen and found Mioli. And this was... is the pilot we're still talking about? Yes, no, the, the pilot. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure I'm following along. Yeah. So <clears throat> he found Mioli, which is the other guy who decided to stay in the copter. He managed to get out too. Oh my God. He was the guy who didn't have a survival suit on. Oh no, he's cold. Right. So Ravola gave Mioli the hood from his suit. And then tie them together with a parachute cord. So, oh my goodness, we know Bashor made it. We know Mioli and Ravola made it. Okay, so there's two people at this point unaccounted for. Okay, okay. So, explain the rescue swimmer that jumped from an estimated sixty feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he comes to, he is in a lot of pain. Oh, I bet. So he doesn't know this yet. He knows he's hurt, but mm-hmm. here are his injuries. Um, he fractured three bones in his left arm. Oh, yikes. One in his left leg, four ribs, ruptured a kidney, and bruised his pancreas. Oof. Hmm. So he missed the crest and hit a trough and his body is feeling the consequences. No, that really stinks. Yep. When he comes to, he also has a short-term memory loss, which is something that happens when the body goes into shock like this. Yeah. All he knows is the situation is he is in. He barely knows who he is. He doesn't know why he's in this situation. He's just like, what the fuck, you know? Um, yeah. Then he spots the life life raft and swims toward it. And then his memory begins to return. And he's like, oh, that's right. Like, I'm a rescue swimmer. Our helicopter went down. Like, that's right. Okay. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so after clinging to the life raft um, and trying to get up in it with all of these broken body parts, a, a gust of wind catches the raft and flips it over and throws him into the raft. So he's in the raft. Hooray. 
so at first he feels better being like dry-ish on the floor of the raft and he hears people shouting in the distance so he's like oh my gosh it's probably the guys then the wind catches the raft again and flips him back over into the water oh my god and this happens four more times before he like bails on the raft oh my god and so he's like getting thrown around like he's in a fucking washing machine yeah so yeah eventually he bails on the raft and holds on to like another floating bag of supplies because he's like like we're never gonna be able to get this raft to stabilize unless everybody's Uh in it like i can't keep doing this i'm gonna get even more hurt so he was now by himself and realized his only chance of survival was to make it until the storm subsided or until morning and he also knew those chances were slim as dawn was eight hours away yeah so he says it's so dark he couldn't see his hand in front of his face waves were like hitting him out of nowhere because he can't see anything so he has no idea when they're gonna hit him the wind was just flinging water around and he was swallowing a lot of it so he's throwing up from all the seawater oh my god on top of having these injuries yeah that sucks like can you imagine throwing up with four broken ribs that would hurt so bad like the worst pain you could be in i couldn't you know this is another tangent, but my friend, when she had her wisdom teeth taken out, she had a negative reaction to the pain medicine she was on and was, like, uh, vomiting. That is something that I don't think I could imagine. Mm-hmm. Like, your mouth being that sore, but then vomiting. Oh, my God. Ugh. I mean, I imagine vomiting with four broken ribs is on par with, like, childbirth pain. Oh, like, yeah. You know what I mean? like, it's- <laughs> yes. It hurts. I couldn't even... I'd be crying the entire time. Yeah, or, like, just blacking out. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, I would not survive. No. (laughs) Definitely not. This guy does is freaking, like, inhuman amazing. So he sees two strobe lights um, while he's just, you know, vibing out there. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's Revolta and Mioli, the pilot and the flight engineer who were still on the helicopter, at first, though, he saw them and he was like, I don't want to join them because I don't want them to see me suffer as I die. Because at this point, he's like, I'm going to die. Yeah. And then his survival training kicked in. So he knew there was strength in numbers. And he also knew that if he was with them, he would try harder not to die so that he wouldn't let them down. Like, oh, talk yeah. about the That's brain... The- yeah, that's determination. Yeah, well, and talk about the brain doing like really weird things. Like, well, yeah. if I'm hanging out with my friends, it would be incredibly uncool of me to die. So. Yeah, it's like I can't die in front of them. Like, how embarrassing would that be? <laughs> I know that's not exactly what it is, but it kind of like it's like it's like a peer pressure kind of thing. Yeah, but for but good. <laughs> yeah, but it's also such a sign of like, um, Like, humans are social creatures to the point where being with another person can cause us to push through, you know, our limits of what we can survive. And that's incredible. It's like, it's the will to live, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you're with these people, you're like, I'm not going to let them see me like that. Like, Mm -hmm. I have to survive. Yeah. 
my brain would be like, just survive just long enough so they don't see you like that. But like, you're probably still going to die, but just don't do it like in front of them. <laughs> I mean, I don't care. I'll die in front of whoever. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I don't oh, know that's... that would work on me. I think being with other people would work. Yeah. But not for that reason. I think it would yeah. be for more of a comfort thing for me. This is just an interesting psychological thing. So he swam over to them. And I, the way I write it, it's like, oh, yeah, he just paddled on over. This task took a couple of hours. Oh, my goodness. Because he's swimming through fucking 40-foot waves. Yeah, that's insane. And, like, he's a rescue swimmer, so he's good at swimming. But he also has a broken arm and broken leg. Yeah, so. Four, four broken ribs. Like, so he's hurting. Yeah, very but much so, I would say. So he saw once he got to them that Revola seemed fine, all things considered. Um, but Mioli was nearly incoherent with hypothermia. Oh, yeah, I bet. Because he didn't have his gumby suit. Yeah. I've provided a picture of a gumby suit. <laughs> Is that like flat, like circular feet pads that it has on that? Yeah, so you can fit your shoes in them. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Gotcha. So like it's big enough that you can put it over all of your clothes because if you're in like a like a boat sinking situation you could maybe only have minutes to put on the suit get the life raft together get in the life raft and so when i was out on the pacific we trained on how to put this on in a minute like that was like it has to do it yeah that quick and at first, you're like, oh, it's easy. But then you put your stupid arms in the stupid gloves and you mm-hmm. lose all your dexterity. And so zipping up that zipper, such a pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's such an ordeal. But yeah, that's that's what it is. And it's literally for if you have to bail. Um, yeah. So people were coming for them. However, within minutes of the ditching, rescue assets from Florida to Massachusetts had been readied for deployment. Um, The Tamaroa, which was the Coast Guard cutter that was 15 miles away from them, diverted to their, like, last known location before the helicopter even went down. Mm -hmm. So they were already on their way. Um, A Navy P-3 jet took off with the ability to detect heat-emitting objects. So if they were still alive, they should be able to detect them. Gotcha. Um, or they, they could. It was a possibility. Yeah. Another Coast Guard cutter was also headed their way. But the ships were facing bad conditions themselves because it's still like peak storm, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they could lose more men or gear, you know, trying to rescue. So it's like... So, like, this helicopter is sent out to rescue some other person, and then the helicopter goes down, and then they're sending out more people to rescue those people. So, it's just keep putting people in more and more danger. Yeah. So, but they continued heading out to find them because they're Coast Guard, and that's what they do. But, you know, it's considered unlikely that they would find them because the three are moving pretty fast in these seas. Mm-hmm. You know, the bigger the seas, the more you drift, the more you get pushed. Yeah, from your last known location. Yeah, it'd be hard to find them too with the waves that big. Mm-hmm. And it's dark. And yeah, it's dark. and it's dark. So 
a Falcon jet out of Cape Cod was the one that actually found them first at 1140. So that's about two-ish hours after. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, from an air frequency, or sorry, from a frequency coded for air guard radios. So they mm-hmm. knew that one of them down there was transmitting. Their yeah. survival vests have like transmitters attached to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Falcon jet honed in on the signal, but the H3 Coast Guard helicopter that was um, with the jet with less fuel capability than the Air Guard's H60 helicopter can't rescue them, even though they know where they are now, because the wind shear is too strong that they would have the same issues with the basket that the air guard did during their attempted rescue of the Japanese sailor. Like they can't put the basket down because the waves yeah. are too high. And yeah. Getting them all tangled up and cutting them in half. And mm-hmm. so, Ugh. so same issue. It's like, if they couldn't rescue that guy in these conditions, I don't think that like this helicopter with less capability can do yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely not. So after an hour of trying to reach them, the H3 is forced to give up because they're nearing their like bingo point where they have mm-hmm. to return or else they're going to be in the same situation yeah. as their fuel is running out. But the Coast Guard cutter, the Tamaroa, was on the way. So the H3 dropped a flare by the guys in the water and left. So they're out there with the flare, right? Mm-hmm. The Tamaroa spotted graham busher first so he was the co-pilot that was forced out of the cockpit okay um so he had been swimming alone by himself about a half mile from the other three. Oh my god and it was actually his radio beacon that alerted the falcon jet no oh. no one else's were working oh so the coast guard or the captain maneuvers the Tamaroa up sea of Busher so that he could drift down onto them with the waves because they didn't want him to get smashed against the hull mm-hmm. by the waves. So they were in beam two seas, which is a dangerous position to be in because it means the port and starboard starboard sides of the ship were getting hit by the waves. Um which is more likely to capsize a boat than if they were facing the waves head on. Yeah. And it's something that you learn. It's like boating 101. You don't mm-hmm. want to be in beam two seas, especially in rough conditions, because basically you're just giving more surface area for the waves to like take you out. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'll put a diagram up uh, if people don't know what we're talking about, but like, when you think about it physics-wise, it, it does make sense, like, that you don't want to be parallel with the waves. You don't want them to be smacking you Yeah, on the side. Yes. So, in addition to this, sometimes Busher was, like, 30 feet higher than the men trying to rescue him. Because the boat's in a trough, and Busher's on the crest, and then they switch. And so, it's, like, this crazy, risky dance that they're doing. So the Tamaroa is trying to move itself closer to Busher, but it's like a large ship. It's not like a little guy that can like zip around or anything. Mm-hmm. So Busher's only hope at this point was to just swim for the Tamaroa. Oh, God. 
So the crew began shouting at him to swim, like, because they're, they're like, this literally, like, we can't get to you. Yeah. And so he did, and he managed to catch hold of the cargo net the crew dropped over the side. Oh, that's awesome. And they hauled him up onto the deck. Oh, my goodness. Um, and so they li- they literally just picked this guy up out of 40-foot seas. Like That's insane. <laughs> uh, this has taken them a half hour. Uh, and they still had four men of the water, what or in the water, one of which they had seen no sight of yet. Yeah. Busher was throwing up seawater. His core temperature was 94 degrees, even though he had a survival suit. Oh, goodness. So even with a survival suit in these water conditions. Still cold. Y- you can only hang on for so long, basically. Yeah. Um, he'd been in the water for four and a half hours at this point. Oh my goodness. So, find my little diagram of the BMCs. Yeah, I like that diagram. I was just looking at it. Yeah. That's a good, good visual. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you want to be perpendicular to the waves so you can cut through them with Mm -hmm. the hole. Mm -hmm. That's, it's like boating 101, really. And that's for kayaks and paddle boards, too. Mm-hmm. It's not just boats. Yeah. So 20 minutes later, the Tamaroa was beam two again, 100 oh, yards upwind of the three air guards. Uh, so that's Spillane, Mioli, and Rubola, the three that had managed to find each other. Um, but unlike Busher, two of them are not in good condition. Oh, uh, Yeah. <laughs> So they too swam for the ship, however, much more slowly because mm-hmm. Spillane was swimming with broken body parts and Mioli was hyperthermic. Like, oh very my god, yeah, sorry, hypothermic. But after the third attempt, they were able to grab onto the cargo net, but the deck crew was pulling up basically 600 pounds of dead weight of men and soaked gear. Mm-hmm. which would be a feat of strength even in normal conditions. But as they did, a huge wave dropped out from underneath them. So all that oh. dead weight hit at once. God. And the, you know, the three were exhausted and the net was wrenched out of their hands. And Spillane, amazingly, despite his injuries, was able to cling to the net again. And the deck crew pulled him up and he was carried inside. Oh, wow. So this guy experienced like five hours of being in like some of the worst seas with all of these broken body parts i can't imagine and he swam to his crewmates like yeah can't imagine i could so Ravola and mioli are still out here though they're still out there and they were pulled to the stern of the cutter by the wave so now they're getting close to the engines right Mm -hmm. and the like rotors the blades the prop you know Mm -hmm. and so the tamaroa had to turn off their engines because they didn't want to like chop the two of them up oh my goodness so now the ship doesn't have their engines going yeah so revola like swims dragging mioli back to the cargo net and was able to grab onto the net again so they were able to like turn their engines back on and yeah he said to Mioli, who was entering the last stages of hypothermia, 
and barely conscious. You've got to do this, Jim. There aren't too many second chances in life. This is going to take everything you got. Um, so Mioli managed with literally his last bit of energy to grip the net. Mm-hmm. The two men get pulled upwards until they are pulled on board. Mioli is severely hypothermic with a core temperature of 90 90.4 degrees. Oh my goodness, that's not which good. I didn't even know you could survive that, but uh-uh. um, by the following morning, both Mioli and Spillane were stable, oh, wow. but it was safer for them to stay on board than get airlifted in the store. For sure. Yes. <laughs> they both were like, we'll stay here. Yeah. Just- Put me in one of those like uh, aluminum foil blankets, whatever they're called, the space blankets, heat me up. <laughs> let me rest give me yes. some food some water yeah shower bath whatever you gotta do like yeah, yeah. i would uh, yeah no I, not I getting back it. in a helicopter right no, now. no <laughs> i would definitely not do that but rick smith who's the other um uh rescue swimmer mm-hmm. is still out there like oh, they don't gosh. know where he is yeah so all of the PJs thought it was likely he was still alive as he was one of the most highly trained PJs in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and a total of nine aircraft were still searching for him. So on the night of the 31st, so that's a day after, mm-hmm. um, searching aircraft spotted day glow die, which is a die given to PJs in their survival year. Okay. It's activated to allow planes to see their drift, like, at yeah, night where they're going. Yeah. And so it was most likely activated by Smith, like, who the, who else mm-hmm. was out there? Yeah. Um, but there was no sign of him. Um, although, so this got confusing, and I'm not really sure, like, what's legit and what isn't. But mm-hmm. there are some unconfirmed reports that, like, a human being... Or an object was spotted in the middle of the day glow dye cloud. Oh. But, like, they weren't able to get to that. Or, like, they were in an airplane, so they just recorded it. And, like, it's like, hey, come pick it up. Like, come pick them up. Yeah. So, there's reports that, like, people did see him. Oh, that stinks. not been, like, confirmed. Yeah, that's sad. So, it's possible that in a wetsuit or survival suit if he didn't drown he would have been able to survive four days they think before hypothermia or dehydration took him Mm -hmm. the search however was suspended after nine days with no further clues and Spillane speculated that Smith may have been knocked unconscious upon hitting the water Mm-hmm. And may have been in- as injured as he was as they jumped from the helicopter at almost the same time. Yeah. Strong possibility, honestly. And, like, if Spillane didn't have the other people, there's a strong possibility that he would have died. Yeah. And who knows, like, maybe Smith, like, jumped and was at a greater height, like, and mm-hmm. hit the water and immediately died or, like hit yeah. the water and just like went unconscious or had like much worse injuries so to me that makes sense yeah that makes sense too that's but sad it's, though it's sad yeah no answers for the family which sucks 
Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's like death at sea. Mm -hmm. You know, you rarely get an answer. Yeah. Unless you're a billionaire in a Pringles can. And then people will spend a lot of money to figure out. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, So the storm has taken a toll on many people. Uh, including the loved ones of the Andrea Gale and Rick Smith. A few parts of the Andrea Gale are found after the storm, but the ship and the crew are gone, and all six men are considered lost at sea, and their story has become famous in the movie and book The Perfect Storm. Mm -hmm. Um, So this story that I said told today is just a, like, side story in both of those yeah but it is like a crazy story so it's like i gotta do it (laughs) yeah no that is very crazy for sure yeah so theories as to um as what happened to the andrea gale are many including that the boat got hit by a rogue wave because they knew that there were like 100 feet waves out there Mm mm-hmm or that the hull of the boat was not properly sealed and filled up with seawater, causing it to sink. Or that the boat somehow got beamed to in the tall Ugh. seas and capsized yeah. it, like we talked about. Um, or that the work that had been done on the boat earlier had failed, like in the welding. Um, yeah. So the hull of the boat was extended in size three feet on her stern to accommodate more fuel tanks and nine feet aft to accommodate more storage, which changed the boat's center of gravity um, and caused the boat to recover from rolls more slowly. Um, uh-huh. And they, they think that this might have been like a source of weakness, especially in these conditions. No stability or welding tests were done on the boat, um, Hmm. which is called eyeball engineering, (laughs) which was done by almost every sword boat owner or captain. Like there's no like regulatory structure basically being like, well, you have to do these tests if you're going to be out. Yeah, that's interesting. You would think that there would be some sort of like standardization of swordfish Mm -hmm. boats. No, it's they're all kind of like figuring their own design out basically that does not seem safe clearly Mm -hmm. it wasn't (laughs) so due to this the owner of the boat bob brown was sued for wrongful death by the loved ones of the crew these suits unfortunately were settled in private so they never went to court that's interesting and they make that guy the villain in the movie (laughs) oh i'm sure they (laughs) do The four air guardsmen barely survived their ordeal and lost one of their own along the way. Uh, Marianne Smith, who's the wife of Rick Smith, went through her own grief. Uh, President Bush and Governor Cuomo sent her a letter of sympathy. It's like, oh, thanks. Um, Mm -hmm. But she shielded her kids from the news and she didn't go to the memorial service for him on Long Island because of all of the news cameras there. And she didn't want to subject her kids to that. Um, So eventually she decided to go to law school to deal with and distract her from the grief, which is kind of badass. That is, yeah. It's like, oh, I'm sad. I'm going to go. I'm just going to go to law school. I'm just going to go become a lawyer. (laughs) Jesus. 
uh, Spillane becomes a New York City fireman and experiences some bad PTSD one night when the station alarm wakes him up. Um, but eventually he comes out of the haze of panic with all of his firefighting gear on. Um, somehow he's, he still like was able to go through the motions and get ready, but it was like the siren and the flashing lights that like triggered it. Oh yeah. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine. This event definitely stays with the four of them forever and they never found Rick Smith. And That's that sad. is the amazing, but, still but sad also sad story <laughs> of the air guard rescue during the perfect storm. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Um, that's a sad story for uh, Rick Smith and his family, and then all the crew aboard the the Andrea Gale. Yes. Why did I want to say Ariana Grande? The Ari- <laughs> <laughs> the Ariana Grande. That's what I'm going to name my boat if I ever get one. <laughs> sorry that i wasn't meant to be disrespectful i was i literally almost just said ariana grande for some reason (laughs) i think it's just the a and the g you know yeah it just triggers your brain to be like here let me fill this in for you yeah (laughs) it's the add kicking in Um, yeah so so yeah you can watch the movie i do think that the part about the air guard rescue there is a, a lot of inaccuracies in it oh from what i read in the book because in the book devotes basically a big whole entire chapter to this Mm -hmm. so i was able to get like a ton of it was hard to like cut down um like the information for this the story but they get rick smith's name wrong what how do you get that wrong they call him some it's somebody else entirely i can't remember what name it is but it's not him that's interesting. Like I wonder John if they did something. I wonder if they did that because I mean, just seeing how the wife reacted to everything, I wonder if she was like, You can't and now that she's a lawyer, she knows the laws. I wonder mm. if she was like, You can't use his name like that. I don't want you like, you yeah. know, using his name like that. So I'm I wonder if they had to change his name because of legal Maybe. Reasons. Maybe that's a good point. I didn't think mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. Everybody else I think their name is correct, but uh his is not. And they combine, like, two separate events, like, together to, like, tell that story. Mm-hmm. Um, which I get it's a movie, so they have to, like, streamline it somehow. But I will say it's not as accurate. I think definitely some of the parts about the Andrea Gale are far more accurate. But that being said, everything that happened to those men is speculative, Mm-hmm. so especially from the part where they lose contact with everybody else yeah um it's still a good movie um it's sad but i did enjoy it it's like an all-star cast so yeah it's definitely worth a watch if you want to um but if you want more of an accurate look and more of a deep dive into fisheries in new england basically uh the perfect storm uh has a lot of good information about that yeah oh yeah so besides the perfect storm which i read for Mm -hmm. this um i also used uh 30th october 1991 by brian swopes uh from this day in aviation history for this story good deal 
we got the citations in. I did it. I didn't even have to be reminded. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. So I typed in uh, endangered species in Nova Scotia because you said this is like, you know, near Nova Scotia. Uh-huh. And COD's not on their list. Well, that's because it's probably all terrestrial coastal animals. The reason I suggest cod is because the Grand Banks used to be one of the biggest cod fisheries in the world, and uh, the cod population collapsed in, like, the 80s, I believe. Like, there were so... Their conservation status says they're vulnerable. Yes, because we've done a lot of work to bring them back from the brink. What's the list again? Well, how does it go? It's endangered. Is it below vulnerable or above vulnerable? I think... what do you mean below? Like in the tier. Is it like closer to extinction or like one step closer to non-extinction? You know, I don't know. I feel like endangered is worse than vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's just do cod then. The Atlantic cod. So I don't know why I didn't realize that they look the way that they do. Yeah. They're kind of derpy. Yeah. They... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they kind of are they taste um, good yeah so cod they look in this picture they're like a yellowy kind of color they have um, a heavy bodied appearance with a large head blunt snout and a distinct barbell which is a whisker like organ on a catfish or like on a catfish um, and they have this barbell under their lower jaw so they got a little beard mm-hmm. um like a goatee. They're, yes, a goatee. <laughs> Their color varies, ranging from light yellowish green to red and olive, usually with a darker speckle on the head, fins, tail, and body. The belly is light colored and usually spotless. Individuals can change color readily, which that is a fun fact I didn't know about cod. Um, they have an obvious lateral line, which is that faint line that runs lengthwise down each side of a fish. And it's a um, sensory organ, mm-hmm. basically. It's a sensory organ, yep. Yeah. So they can live for more than 20 years. They can grow up to 51 inches and 77 pounds. They are capable of reproducing at two to three years old when they are between 12 and 16 inches long. Cod spawn near the ocean floor from winter to early spring. Large females can produce three to nine million eggs when they spawn. They are top predators in the bottom ocean community, feeding on a variety of invertebrates and fish. They live in the Northwest Atlantic. They range from Greenland to Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. And in U.S. waters, cod is the most common on Georgia's bank in the western Gulf of Maine. Their habitat is uh, obviously the ocean floor uh, along rocky slopes and ledges. They prefer to live in cold water at depths around 30 to 500 feet on bottoms with coarse sediments rather than on finer mud and silt. Which is why the Georgia's Banks and Grand Banks are like ideal cod habitat. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, So there are two stocks of Atlantic cod in the U.S. waters, the Gulf of Maine and Georgia's Banks stocks. NOAA Fisheries and the New England Fishery Management Council manage Gulf of Maine cod. NOAA Fisheries and the New England Fishery Management Council collaborate with Canada to jointly manage the Georgia's Bank cod because of the stock spans the international boundary. Atlantic cod, along with other ground fish in New England waters, are managed under the Northeast Multi-Species Fishery Management Plan, which mm-hmm. includes permitting requirements for commercial vessels, bleh, vessels uh separate management measures for recreational vessels 
year-round and seasonal area closures to protect spawning fish and habitat, minimum fish sizes to prevent harvest of juvenile fish, annual catch limits based on the best available science, an optional sector program that can be used for cod and other groundfish species. The sector program allows fishermen to form harvesting cooperatives and work together to decide when, where, and how they will harvest fish. A rebuilding plan to rebuild the Gulf of Maine stock to target population level is in place with a target date of 2024. Oh, that's next year. Mm-hmm. A rebuilding plan to rebuild the Georgia's bank stock to the target population level is in place with a target date of 2027. And so not too far in the future. Mm-hmm. In the commercial fishery in 2021, commercial landings of Atlantic cod totaled 1.3 million pounds and were valued at $3 million, according to NOAA Fisheries Commercial Fishing Landing Database. Which is incredibly uh, low compared oh, to what it used to be. Like, sorry, mm-hmm. I don't mean to keep interrupting. No, you're good. Like, I'm being very selfish about conservation coordinate today because mm-hmm. I'm like, like, I don't think people know about how big the mm-hmm. cod fishery is this is the reason why new england is old money baby like mm-hmm. there was so much wealth to be made in this fishery yeah i was trying to go back up to uh their like population status so yeah. it says two stocks of atlantic cod obviously we just talked about that gulf of maine and georgia's banks historically cod was so abundant off new england that early explorers named cape cod for the fish Mm-hmm. That's so funny. I never put that together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cape Cod was for cod the fish. Um, and then furthermore, Gloucester was established by a colonial charter issued to profit from cod fishing and painted sacred cod carved from pine has hung in the Massachusetts State House since 1784 as a symbol of prosperity. Yep. So yeah, cod is a is a whole way of life up there, huh? It is. Or it was. And, yeah, it and was. now... Three million is nothing for a fishery. Yeah, due to the high fishing pressure throughout the latter part of the 20th century, there were fewer fish in the U.S. stocks of Atlantic cod than the average for the past four decades. A primary source of rebuilding potential is the number of young fish coming into the population, which was what we call recruitment. Um, Over the past 20 years, recruitment has varied for the Gulf of Maine stock and has been well below the average for the Georgia's bank stock, which is why those limits of catch size is important because if we want the young ones to stick around and thrive as adults and then spawn next generation, you can't be catching them. So Yeah, and you also have to protect the older breeding females because the bigger the fish gets, the more babies they can make. That's the mm-hmm. general rule. So you want to not harvest the really big females because they produce a huge amount of yep. the stock. Um, fish science. Fish um, science. Sorry. I'm getting okay. like annoying about this. I realized that. Oh, <laughs> no, you're fine. I don't think you're being annoying. I was pretty um, much done. I read all the stuff I read was off of Noah. So yeah, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so I was in sea semester, which was the trip I took. I took classes in Woods Hole, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. So we were like in cod, cod zone, cod territory. Cod country. Cod, cod country. <laughs> um, so, and then we did our trip across the Pacific, but we read this book. It's called Cod. Uh, it's by Mark Kurlansky. And it's literally a history of this fish, which cod were fished since before we technically knew that 
the North American continent existed. Oh, wow. Because the Spanish Basques, like, found the fishing grounds off of Iceland, Greenland, Grand Banks, Georgia's Banks. Yeah. And kept that shit a secret because it was so plentiful. Yeah, I bet they would. I wouldn't tell a soul if I found something like that. And so they knew before they sent Christopher Columbus out that North America existed. That's crazy. I mean, we know the Vikings also, you know, stumbled across North America long before Christopher Columbus went out. But like, we knew about, the Spanish knew about North America before they sent Columbus out. Because they knew the cod fishery out there. Because of the cod fishing grounds. That's crazy. So we've been fishing this fish for literal like centuries that's insane and it got so crazy that in the 1970s the the british and the icelandic or in iceland basically got into a militarized standoff over cod fishing grounds yeah and so that's how important this history is and i don't think a lot of people realize that yeah, I just, I typed in cod history on Google and what came up was Call of Duty history. So I had to type in codfish history. <laughs> um, but it says that the Portuguese began fishing cod in the 15th century. Yeah. So yeah, clip fish is widely enjoyed in Portugal. The Basques played an important role in the cod trade and allegedly found the Canadian fishing banks before Columbus discovered America. Yes. Yep. That's crazy. And cod was a major aspect of the triangle trade. You know, the slave trade, basically. Oh, remember how we know. learned about that in school? Yeah, I don't That's remember that, but yeah, sure. Real <laughs> fucked up, obviously, because it involves slavery. But basically, you know, they would take enslaved people from Africa, bring it to the West Indies. The West Indies would take sugar, would go up to New England. New England would make it into molasses and send it off to Europe. That was what we learned in our history books. Gotcha. But one of their other major exports within that trade system to Europe was salt cod. That's and that crazy. gets left out. Yeah. And that's that's the real wealth of New England. <laughs> yeah. The- and so in the 80s, the population started dipping down. Scientists were noticing this, but the fishermen were like, we're still catching buku amounts of cod. Mm-hmm. And that's because cod is an aggregate species. So when oh. there's less of them, they tend to all aggregate together. Yeah. And the fishermen knew where they were at. So they would go and target them and still be coming up with these like record numbers of cod. Yeah. And so till... like, even though the population's declining, it doesn't look like it's declining because they're all exactly. getting together in these spots. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a that's something that you see as a fisheries biologist all the time with other kinds of fish. This this is a fight we have with fishermen all the time. And honestly, like it's nothing against the cod fishermen because like they're just trying to make a, a living too. Yeah. But it's this like lack of connect between like scientists and fishermen and, and like fishermen are just convinced that we're out to just fuck them over and it's like, it's like well no we want you to like prosper in the long term too so that's yes and it's hard to convince somebody who's just trying to feed their family that like okay you need to look at this on a long scale because next year you might not be able to feed your family or it might be yeah. a lot harder yeah and yep. it's hard to do and i get it 
but it's 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 a constant battle yeah and so in 92 the year i was born oh uh, that's a good year <laughs> well not for them because cotton yeah. populations fell to one percent of their historical levels so the cod fishery was placed under a moratorium oh for, God. like i think a decade maybe yeah and the big besides the fact that like there was a disconnect between the scientists and the fishermen the other really big reason why cod were so overfished was because of the industrial um not the industrial revolution but like after world war ii like fishing like industrial fishing like went crazy because we had all this new technology and we could like really target huge amounts of yeah and that's happened to a lot of fisheries it definitely happened to the cod fishery and and that's why the collapse happened in in a very short kind of nutshell well and you would know a lot about this other fishery too but like the tuna fishery like mm-hmm. i remember learning years ago that we've overfished tuna to a point i think it was yellowfin tuna specifically to a point to where they're not as large as they could be anymore like yeah. they used to catch these like monster yellowfin and like make tons of money but we fished all of those genetics out of that that pool essentially and so now the yellowfin that's out there they're never going to be the size to what they could have been in the past well and it's like a it's a um like evolutionary genetic response to overfishing mm-hmm. like the more overfishing that happens fish start reproducing at smaller sizes yeah and that's something you see in a lot of different fish populations as well because they're trying to like okay well if i'm gonna get killed by age three or whatever i want to make as many babies as i possibly can kind of thing mm-hmm. which i mean they're not thinking that but their genetics are yeah that makes the selection is which is wild that we can see that happen within like a couple of generations of fish i know it's crazy so yeah so cod fish race sorry i took that oh. over <laughs> no that's fine <laughs> you're more fit for that anyway so it's all good let's talk about cod yeah one of my favorite quotes and you said part of it um you know that the cod were so plentiful but there's a quote from john smith the you know pocahontas dude uh-huh so he, when he first came to, to the States, he landed in um, New England and he said something about like how cod were so plentiful that you could have walked across their backs across. How crazy is that? Which I'm sure is an over-exaggeration, but still like. You probably saw them like rolling all the, well, they probably don't roll because they're on the bottom, but yeah, you know, probably saw them. Mm-hmm through the water because i bet the water clarity was a hell of a lot better yeah back then too fucking was <laughs> yeah so, so i'm sure he saw tons of it yeah so that's you know that's another major fishery in that region outside of the swordfish fishery which faces a lot of the same problems as tuna does yeah um, so i'm glad you brought tuna up for sure it's um, in that just, just a fascinating i don't know it's just fascinating to me where like in our lifetime, we're seeing these drastic changes I know. in the environment and uh, certain species, and it's shocking. It is, you know. It's I'm glad to know that they're not listed listed as like endangered. Endangered. Anymore. Yeah, it seems like they kind of bumped up a bit, you know. 
but I'm t I'm looking at figures right now and they're just like nowhere near what they were, you yeah. know, population wise. So yeah, that's a, that's a rough one. That's a, that is a, a tale that many people I hope will take and, you know, it's the tragedy of the commons. Yeah. And like, how do you help that? Well, just don't fucking eat it. That's kind of what it is. It's like, yeah. if there's not a demand for it, then they're not going to keep fishing for it. That's yeah. the reverse effect of what we do for down here for lionfish. Mm-hmm. If you want to help get lionfish out of the water, just demand it at restaurants. Like, oh, because lionfish is pretty good. Um, So it's like, oh, like I heard lionfish is pretty good. Do you guys have lionfish? And then like it start, starts that conversation of like, oh, we've been getting a lot of requests for lionfish. Maybe we mm-hmm. should carry it. And then it's like next thing you know, there's this whole fishery that's like bringing lionfish in mm-hmm. and taking them out of the water, which is what we need down here because they're invasive. So, I mean, there's so many edible fish that we don't really fish for on an industrial scale. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing. Like, yeah, some of my favorites people recreationally don't really fish for down here. Like, uh, triple tail, very tasty. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. Uh, Black drum people do fish for, but not at like the levels of red drum. And I think black drum tastes better than red oh, drum. That's interesting. Like, stuff like that. But I'm just yeah. like, it's kind of weird that we don't fish for these more because I think they taste great. Yeah. But, you know. That's so. interesting. Huh. All right. So well, now yeah, that we've talked about the collapse of an entire fishery and yeah. the... happy things. Yeah. I know. I know. Um, do you, you want to talk me to about go? your happy thing? Yeah, you can go first. Okay. Um, so speaking of fish, um, I guess my only happy thing from the past week is that, so I was doing this big acoustic telemetry project on alligator gar, which mm-hmm. are a big apex predator down here on the Gulf Coast. They're very big, toothy, prehistoric looking fish. They're mm-hmm. pretty sick in my opinion. Um, and so we've set up an array of these receivers that are able to pick up transmission from the tags that we tag them with. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's that project in a nutshell. So we can kind of follow their movement, where they're moving to different bay systems, different river systems, because they are, you know, brackish to freshwater fish. So we want to know, you know, how are they using the coast to move around? Yeah. Um, and that's the study in a nutshell. So we lost one of our receivers like two-ish months ago. Um, we haven't been able to pick it back up until this week or like go oh, look okay. for it until this yeah. week. And thank God everything was there. It was just underwater because some idiot decided to moor to our PVC pole and basically bent it like a bendy straw. Oh, God. It's like a two inch thick PVC pole. Like it's not. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it was all there. It's just underwater. So it looked like it had like gotten ripped out. But so we were able to retrieve the receiver. Oh, that's good. And we had detections of fish on it. Oh, good. One of which swam uh, almost 20 miles within a month of us tagging it. Oh, wow. Like from its original tagging location to where 
that receiver was was a is like 18 and a half miles in a month in a month that's far yeah especially considering it had to get through the brazos river locks to do oh, so wow yeah <laughs> so i am thrilled because i had no idea that this whole thing would work yeah um, and so the fact that we have detections on this receiver, which is probably in it's our farthest east receiver, so it's on the far end of our array, mm-hmm. um, is really really exciting for me. And that is really exciting. That's cool that they traveled like nearly twenty miles. I know. That. Now I'm really excited to go check all the rest of them. Whereas before, I was like terrified. I'm like, what if nothing shows up? Like, what if yeah. I tag them wrong? What if they all died? Like. And so, like, do you have, I mean, I'm assuming you have other receivers, like, throughout that mm-hmm. that area. So you yeah. could actually check and make sure that it's, like, hitting all of those receivers on its way down. Yeah. Because, like, what if somebody fucking just caught that thing and was, like, trying to bring it home and they're like, ah, no, I don't want this. And they just dumped it somewhere else. And you're like, oh, this thing traveled yeah. 20 miles in a month. I wonder how it got here. Yeah, you're the second person to say that. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> My text said the same thing. <laughs> it's like, shh. It's like, we're going <laughs> to hope for the best on this one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, though, like, I wouldn't put it past somebody. Like, after hearing the type of shit that Alex deals with from, mm-hmm. like, the, you know, the resource management side of things. Yes. People think that they can just go out in the water and take things and bring mm-hmm. them back for their aquariums. Mm-hmm. So They do. Yeah. And then when mm-hmm. and Texas is actually the second largest state behind Florida for environmental law enforcement. So yeah. I could totally see someone getting pulled over, having mm-hmm. a live gar in the bed of their truck because they want to bring it home to their aquarium or like their their freshwater pool or pond or whatever they have. Oh my God. And then they're like, no, you gotta you gotta ditch this thing. Mm-hmm. And they bring it back to the closest source of water. <laughs> I hope that's not what happens. I know. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's not, honestly. Yeah. But I mean, I if I heard that, I'd believe it. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Or like they caught it and decided they didn't want it threw yeah. it out at a boat ramp or whatever. Mm-hmm. I guess the only thing is that that receiver is it's near a boat ramp but like it's not near a road if that makes sense Um, oh yeah i don't i don't know who knows that makes sense who knows well keep me posted because that's interesting yeah i mean we tag them externally so you would hope that they would call that number and oh you got like a floy tag in there or dart tag whatever you guys call them yeah yeah dart tag so with our numbers on them so if i saw that as a fisherman i'd be like well i think i might get a reward and make a phone call yeah. you know what I mean so but yeah definitely knows. yeah so wish me luck because we're going to check all the receivers in two weeks good so. luck <laughs> that'll be fun lots of data to sit through lots yeah but I, I don't know it's cool when you look at all of it and you're like oh this fish was here that fish was there like no and I then know. you can actually start putting a map together of like mm-hmm. where they're they're tracking I think mm-hmm. that's cool mm-hmm. I didn't I did really enjoy that side of things. Yeah. And see if there's like size selection. Like are the little ones staying in this area and the big ones moving to freshwater? Like how's that yeah. working? That's, yeah. that's what we were doing with Snook. We were trying to see like if the spawning females, because Snook spawn in the passes on the Gulf Coast. 
Mm-hmm. And so we we're trying to see if the spawning females wintered in the neighboring creek system. Yeah. So we would pull these big ass nets in the passes in, in the summertime around their spawning season and during their spawning season. And then um, outside of their spawning season, we would sample up in the creek system and see what we get. Yeah. And then, and then all of our antennas was our antenna arrays were in the creek systems, but then we had acoustic receivers in the passes and the spawning females got a pit tag that could be picked up by the antenna array. And then they Mm. also got an acoustic tag that would be picked up by the acoustic receivers. But then the little, the little ones that we uh, would sample in the Creek system, they just got a pit tag. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Acoustic telemetry is a really cool tool. It's expensive. Mm -hmm. That's a cool tool. That's why when the red tide happened in 2019, we literally went out in a sea of dead fish to try to see if we could find any of our acoustic tags and reuse them. (laughs) Did not find any of them after an hour and a half. We almost vomited a couple of times. And I was like, I told the the lead biologist, I was like, dude, this is not worth it. Like, if anybody has ever been in red tide, like, you know, it's around because you walk up to the waterfront and you start coughing like you're throat mm-hmm. gets all tingly and scratchy and then like the immediate instance like or the immediate second that you leave that area you're better again yeah. so it's like just imagine like being outside feeling like you have a cold mm-hmm. but then also you want to vomit and there's dead fish all around it smells disgusting when you have to like <laughs> protect your skin so you don't get like yes. the, the rash or like the burns too yes yeah Ugh. it's just awful and it's it was probably hot because it's red. <laughs> oh yeah, it was oh. yeah, disgustingly hot. And we had like our like buffs on and stuff. And I was oh like, my "God, yeah." I was like, "This isn't worth it." No, <laughs> like, we're just like blowing resources at this point that we don't need to blow. Yeah, like, just consider it lost. You never know. Maybe they survived it. Probably didn't because it was fucking bad. But yeah, you know what would be funny though is like with the juveniles, if we tagged, you know, these juvenile fishes. And then obviously there's like shorebirds around that feed on these tiny fishes. Mm. Like there's been times where the shorebird would eat this fish that has a pit tag in it. And the pit tag is small. It's like smaller than your pinky nail. And um, the shorebird like poops the tag out like within the array. Mm -hmm. And then you just get like thousands of hits of this tag just being in there. Yep. And you're like, ah, god damn it. Like because it's just sitting there next to that receiver. Yes. Like, oh my god. Yeah. So you have to like go down and find it in like this muddy, murky water and just like hope for the best that you can yep. find it or just like kick it up, kick the ground up a bit. So try to move it around. But yeah, no, yep. it's yeah. it's fun. It's so fun. Field work, yeah. Field work. Yeah. So if you ever wonder what we do, it's shit like this. Yeah. <laughs> so this shit like that do you have a happy thing yeah i do um it sounds pretty nerdy but my happy thing is that we got our outdoor security cameras set up yesterday (laughs) how is that nerdy (laughs) i don't know it's just one of those like that's like when you're an adult you're like oh this is something that makes me happy now i have outdoor security cameras (laughs) that just makes you sound old not nerdy i just talked about cod and alligator gar for like the last 20 minutes so (laughs) yeah I'm just, I, it's not like we have a security issue, knock on wood. It's just one of those things where like, 
they're a security camera with the floodlight on them. Mm-hmm. So it's more for the light out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is nice to have the security camera around too because of like Waylon. And then like, it, you know, if we have a dog sitter, it's like, okay, we can see if the gate's left open on accident or mm-hmm. like if they're coming by, like he's actually going outside when they come by. You know what I mean? So yeah. yeah. Um, and then it's like we are in a rural, rural area, believe it or not. Even though, you know, people probably think the islands, they probably don't think rural, but it's fucking dark out here. Mm-hmm. There are no streetlights. Mm-hmm. And so coming in at night, like it's a little, it's a little scary. <laughs> yeah, we have, yeah. we have woods across, you know, the front and the back of our house. And so it's just one of those things like, what if there was like, I don't know, like a horrible person that just was like watching our house, like stalking us. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I've been watching too many crime shows. I realize that that's not <laughs> probably something I should be worrying about well, given where we live. But you it's, told me a story about how your our boss neighbor or somebody, neighbor. Oh like, no, no, the the serial killer. That was the, my boss. Yeah. yeah, my boss wasn't a serial killer. She had an interaction with a serial killer. Let me yeah, just get that straight real quick. <laughs> people run down to the keys for whatever reason because to hide from the law, and I'm like, yeah. You're literally running into a corner a that dead you can't end. escape from unless you're going to try to go to Cuba. Like, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because they have those, like, tag readers um, on the highway down in right. here. So it's like if you're a wanted felon, there's a warrant out for you. And they scan your car coming in. They're like, all right, he's in here. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's a finite him. space. Yeah. You know, like there's only one way in and out so. yeah <laughs> but yeah so and then our neighbor like a couple months ago um his i guess they're separated right now but i guess his wife i don't know um he said that his wife said that she came home at night i guess it was like later at night and she said that some there was like this guy that came out from the woods like all mm-hmm. covered up and it like freaked her out so she didn't get out of the car kind of thing and like we've never seen something like that around here there is a guy that runs by our house all covered up but he's like it's you know when you live in a small community like you're like oh that's that guy that goes on a run all covered up you know what i mean like he that's his thing and i don't know if he has like a sun allergy or like sensitive skin Mm -hmm. or like maybe like takes medication where like the sun impacts his skin kind of thing But he is literally, like, he's, like, got the running leggings on, the shorts on top of it, then, like, the long-sleeve UV shirt, and then he's got, like, the buff over, like, up top to his nose, and then his sunglasses on, and then he has, like, a bandana that he wears. Like, he's full fully covered. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the only person. I was like, that guy could think that would be fully covered up. I was like, but that guy just runs. Like, he just goes on runs. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I've seen him all around the neighborhood, like, down the street. So it's like, you why know. would he come out of the woods? Yeah, kind of thing. Like, yeah. Mm. But it's just nice to have those security cameras up, and then the yeah. lights, lights at night. Like we were playing with it last night, and it's it shines real nice. <laughs> it's <laughs> like you can see everything. Yeah. Um. So that's good. And then yeah, it's just nice to have you know cameras all on one space. Like we use uh, all Google Home affiliated mm-hmm. cameras that like are affiliated with nest so we have it all like on one platform which is nice mm-hmm. and it makes me feel like i'm in some sort of like cyber security kind of like <laughs> dungeon because like i have like you know i can pull up the 
the page on my computer and I have like three different like video yeah. screens on like monitoring security like you're a hacker whatever. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like it makes me feel like I could like you know be in like the CIA or something <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so I guess that's my happy thing is getting our cameras on but then also on Monday I leave to go home um, and then I'm traveling to Connecticut for my friend's wedding. So that's also that's right. another happy thing is Carolyn's wedding. And I'll get to see my grandma in the middle of all of that because she lives close by, which is nice. And then after that wedding, we go to Iowa for Alex's cousin's wedding. So that'll be nice. So, yeah, the upcoming weddings and mm-hmm. seeing friends and family is yeah. like also a happy thing, too. So, yeah. Well, I'll probably be able to give you an update on the guard when you come back. <laughs> Yeah. Because I will have hopefully downloaded all the data by then. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be awesome. I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah. I've been um I've been trying to get in volunteering wise with Bonefish Tarpon Trust down here. Mm -hmm. Because I'm like acquaintances with the PhD that does a lot of the Florida Keys projects. Yeah. And I'm just like waiting for the day. I'm like, come on, man. Like I can pull a net. I can measure fish. I can use a YSI. I can drive a boat. Like, yep. if you need Put somebody. Yeah. Yep. I was like, I miss it. If you need somebody, let me know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Well, if you have time, you're always welcome to come down and help out with my bullshit. So I, could, I would do that as a vacation. I'd be like, I'm going to come see Jillian and Corey for like a couple of days. <laughs> and maybe one of those days I'll help her sample. <laughs> yeah. Come out on the gillnets. Yeah. That'd be, be fun. So fun. Um, yeah. This has been a very fishy episode. Yeah, so. but I don't hate it. <laughs> I apologize, I guess, if you're not into fish, but like this is our lives. So you can tell we're really <laughs> excited about it. Ooh. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, yeah. where can our listeners find us? Uh our listeners can find us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Um, disclaimer, I need to get back on TikTok. I am aware that I have slacked. But um, Instagram is Mother Nature Will Kill You Podcast. Facebook is Mother Nature Will Kill You. And then TikTok is MNWKY Podcast. Mm-hmm. And then we have a website, Mother Nature Will Kill You Podcast.com. You can listen to us there. You can listen to us on any streaming platform. So Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, something like that. So yeah. Yeah. And if you have crashed into the ocean in a helicopter or are a Coast Guard rescue swimmer, we want to hear about it. Also, if you're a cod, if you're a cod, we want to know. We want to talk to you. (laughs) But if you haven't, but you have had an uncomfy experience in nature, maybe you were on a sinking vessel um, or maybe you ran into something a little scary out on the trail, uh, we want to hear about that too. And you can submit your stories. Uh, we have a page on the website that you can submit to, or you can send them to our email. If you want to support the podcast, but you don't have any money because we live in a post-capitalist hellscape, uh, you can give us a five-star review on any of our listening platforms. Yes. Okay. And that'd be much appreciated. Yeah. And, uh, Next time it's going to be the beginning of spooky season. I have all kinds of stories. So I'm excited for you. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So with that, 
Yeah. Until next time, uh, stay safe, but most of all, stay curious, explorers. Bye. See you later.